Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure and, in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 14, season 1, and today I spoke to Dr Spencer Jones, a senior lecturer in war studies at the University of Wolverhampton. Spencer spoke to me about the motivations of combatants on all sides during the Boer War of 1899 to 1902. He spoke to me from his office in Wolverhampton. Spencer, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Anglo-South African War or the Boer War, as it's also known? Well, thank you, Tom, and uh, great to be back on. Um, or yeah, I suppose this is a new podcast, so it's my first time on this particular one. Of course, we've worked together in the past. So I'm Senior Lecturer in Armed Forces and War Studies at the University of Wolverhampton. I'm also the Regimental Historian of the Royal Regiment Artillery from 1930. I've got a strong military academia background. And my interest in the, the Anglo-Boer War, it really started with Thomas Packenham's The Boer War, which was a book I took into hospital with me, uh, back in the mid-noughties. And I actually had a library copy I picked up out of interest to read. And that book completely caught my imagination in, in the way that certain great books I do. And it fired my imagination. And then a year after I'd read that book, uh, an opportunity arose where I could undertake PhD study. And in discussion with my supervisory team, I came up with the topic of studying the influence of the Anglo-Boer War on tactics in the British Army, the first one. That would ultimately lead to the book From Boer War to World War. And so, in a way, the Boer War was both where the British Army started its its learning curve, if you will, and it's also where I started my own personal academic learning too. So it's a, it's a subject that's very near to my heart and one that I find endlessly fascinating. So to give us some background, what was the uh, Anglo-Boer War all about? What was the cause of it and who was fighting it? In summary, this was the perhaps the apogee of imperial wars in Africa in the 19th century. So this is a period that's known as the Scramble for Africa, when European powers, predominantly Britain and France, but also other powers, Belgium, Germany and Portugal, were squabbling and fighting over what were ultimately the spoils or deemed to be the spoils of Africa. Africa had... Um, eluded European colonization for many decades, but it's inhospitable climate diseases that were fatal to Europeans. And it wasn't really until the, uh, after 1870 that serious colonization of Africa was possible. And this generated this scramble for Africa as the European powers carved it up to claim large tracts of territory, all part of this era of high imperialism, where it was felt that if a, an empire was not expanding, it was decaying. And so South Africa became... Uh, or the region around South Africa, I should say, became a fulcrum for British imperialism here. And the story that brings Britain to South Africa actually starts a little bit before the scramble for Africa, because South Africa was unique in Africa because it had, I know I use this phrase quite, it's a little bit controversial, but I think it's accurate. It had a long-standing, you could almost argue, indigenous white population in South Africa. And this was, of course, the Afrikaans, or the Boers, as they had become known in the 19th century. And these were the descendants of Dutch settlers who'd arrived in South Africa in the 1600s and had founded the town of, uh, of Cape Town, which was used as a reprovisioning station for ships heading to the Dutch East Indies, now modern Indonesia, and returning back to Europe. The 
Cape Town Colony and the Cape Colony had always struggled to attract immigration from Europe. Dutch immigration to its colonies tended to head toward the Americas or the East Indies rather than South Africa. And the population was fairly small, even centuries after its original founding. Perhaps 40,000 whites in Cape Colony around about 1800, and mainly Dutch, but also some German Protestants and some French Huguenots there as well. Where the British come in is that in 1806, as part of the Napoleonic Wars, the British had actually captured Cape Town from the Dutch, uh, wanted to use it to secure Britain's own sea lanes to India. In 1815, that annexation became formal, and Britain inherited uh, the Cape Colony of South Africa. It also inherited the Afrikaan population. And it's worth saying a little bit about the Afrikaans here, that they were a fiercely independently minded. Even in the 1700s, the, the Dutch South African population had come up with the phrase Afrikaans to distinguish themselves from the Dutch in the Netherlands. Their language was changing. It was a, a rather archaic form of Dutch, medieval form of Dutch, which also inc incorporated some local African words and dialect. Their legal system was rather old-fashioned, and their religion was very old-fashioned. This was really um, 1600s Protestantism in all its bloody-minded glory. Crucially, too, the Afrikaans didn't share a language with the British. And so this made British rule of the Afrikaans extremely difficult. The Afrikaans chafed under this rule. They didn't respect British authority. They rejected British legal systems and British uh, language. And crucially, the, the real bone of contention between the two groups was the issue of slavery. The Afrikaans were a slaveholding society and have been since the 1600s. And the abolition of slavery in the empire in the 1830s was a bridge too far for the Afrikaans, who'd already been chafing under British rule for a generation now. And it prompted something called the Great Trek, where perhaps as many as 20,000, possibly even more, Afrikaners left British-occupied, or British-held, I should say, Cape Colony, and they marched east looking for new homelands. This would eventually lead to them founding the Orange Free State and the Transvaal, separate but independent Afrikaner states. Now, they were in the eastern half of South Africa. Inevitably, though, once the scramble for Africa picked up speed from the 1870s onwards, the British came into contact with these independent countries again. This actually prompted the First Boer War in the early 1880s, which ended in a Boer victory. The Boers defeating a British army at Majuba Hill, prompting the Liberal government in Britain to actually acknowledge Boer independence and make peace rather than endure the cost of continuing the war. There, the situation might have ended, but just a few years after the Boer victory, the Boers discovered that their small nations were home to the largest gold and diamond deposits in the world. A gold rush followed, a diamond rush followed, in fact. Immigrants poured into the Afrikaner states, and of course, British eyes looked at that mineral wealth covetously and were determined to take it. And relations between the two powers declined dramatically. The British would not tolerate the existence of essentially independent and hostile states within the wider British South Africa. And of course, they also desired that mineral wealth. And this led to the British provoking the Boers repeatedly through the 1890s, attempting to draw them into some sort of conflict. Notably, of course, the Jameson raid, an attempt to uh, overthrow the Boer government using a, a force of British and African mercenaries, which misfired spectacularly in 1895. Uh, over the New Year period, in fact, of 1895 and 96, but convinced the Boers war was very, very near at hand. And in fact, it would just be four years later, in October 1899, the Boers felt they'd been backed into a corner politically. They were worried about British forces massing on their border, 
And so the Boers decided to launch a preemptive war, looking to win battlefield victories against the British and then make a negotiated settlement just as they'd done in the first. I appreciate that's quite a long answer, but it's a complicated build-up and um, it's it's important to understand, particularly where the Afrikaans come from, because that'll become very relevant. What were the broad uh, phases of the conflict from 1899 to 1902? Most historians argue there were three phases in this period. Some there, there are some historians who believe there were four, but I follow the three-phase argument. So the first phase is uh, is the Boer invasion of British-held South Africa and the British counterattack against that invasion, and that runs from approximately um, the outbreak of war, so October eighteen ninety nine, until the end of December eighteen ninety nine. So a fairly fairly short period of time. During this period, Boer forces emerge from Orange Free State and Transvaal. They lay siege to crucial British towns that sit astride the railways, Mafeking in the northwest, the diamond mining centre of Kimberley in the west, and ultimately the um, garrison town of Ladysmith in the southeast in Natal. And Ladysmith becomes the fulcrum of this campaign. Boer forces advancing into Natal, of course now KwaZulu-Natal, encounter the main British field army in South Africa. Um, and actually in a series of battles that follow, they drive the British back to the gates of Ladysmith. At that point, the British have a, a choice. They can abandon Ladysmith and fall back across the Tagela River. It's more defensible. They can reorganise and wait reinforcements, or they can try and fight their way out of trouble and, and break the oncoming Boer army. The British commander, Field Marshal George White, or sorry, I should say General George White, he decides to try and take the Boers head on. He's defeated at the Battle of Ladysmith at the end of October, and his forces are driven back into the town where they're besieged. What this means is that by the end of October, um, the British field army in South Africa is essentially neutralised. Nearly all of the British field army gets trapped in Ladysmith and they're under siege. There's a few scattered garrisons around South Africa, but they can't really intervene. And so the Boers hold all the aces. They have taken the initiative. These, this phase continues. Uh, an army corps, it's actually the Aldershot Army Corps from the UK, lands in South Africa in November. Originally, it had been designated to invade the Boer republics and take their capitals. Of course, that's impossible due to these sieges. And so instead, these... Um, the relief force has to break into three separate columns and each tries to go and deal with a separate problem. One column goes to try and relieve Kimberley, another tries to secure railways in the Cape Midland area, and the final one tries to march on Ladysmith and relieve it. Fortunately, all three of these columns are defeated in December 1899 in three separate battle period that's known as Blackwood. And the shock of those defeats coming back to Britain, not to mention the casualties and the, the general setbacks, leads to the second phase of the war, which is essentially the, the empire strikes back. News of the defeats in December gives the British government a problem. It could either make peace or do a deal with the Boers, just as it happened in the 1880s, and take all the political blowback that will come with this, loss of face, um, diminished states in Europe and much more, or it can redouble its efforts and send reinforcements. It chooses to redouble its efforts. It sends reinforcements under the command of Britain's most famous soldier of the day, Lord Roberts, VC. Forces in South Africa, British forces in South Africa, are more than doubled in January, including a mass of volunteers. And with this new, large, reformed army, which is using new tactics and is, of course, much more, uh, much vaster than the original relief force, the um, this, uh, the uh, the tide turns. Uh, Counterattacks are launched. Ladysmith is relieved in February. Kimberley is relieved in February too. And then a relentless British advance marches into the Boer Republics, capturing the capital of Orange Free State, Bloemfontein, in March, and the capital of Transvaal, Pretoria, 
in June, both cities falling without a fight. And by August 1900, the Boer armies are scattered. They're unable to make mount a serious resistance, and it appears that the war is over. But it's an illusion, because although the Boers themselves can't offer a, a fixed defence, they can't fight pitched battles anymore, what they can do is they can scatter their forces and they can fight independently as guerrilla fighters. Some Boer units have actually been doing that since March. Some, some of them get cut off during the British advance, find themselves behind British lines, and just fight on. And that actually proves very effective for the, um, for the Boers, and so... A decision is made uh, amongst surviving units that that is the way the war will be prosecuted, a guerrilla war. And that leads us to the third phase of the war, which runs from roughly March 19, the first guerrilla attacks, guerrilla attacks take place, to the very end of the war in May 1902. And this is a prolonged, bitter guerrilla conflict, which has many of the features of a, a modern insurgency, violation of norms, decline of the rule of law, widespread destruction, disruption, and all the difficulties of a counterinsurgency or a coin. And so those, I think, those are the three broad phases of the... You look at the sort of parent societies from which the two main combatants, so the British and the Boers, uh, come from. What are the differences in their sorts of structures, values and norms? The important thing to take from the Boers to start with is that this is still a largely a frontier society, that the... The South African frontier has only been closed in the, the terminology of imperial historians in the 1880s. So it's still within living memory when the Second Boer War breaks out. Now, what that means is that borders have solidified and the rule of law has been extended to those borders. That's what it's meant by closing um, closing the frontier as opposed to closing. Up until that point, the frontiers of the Boer states were quite nebulous. The edges of those frontiers were quite lawless, something quite akin to the Wild West. Uh, there was all sorts of, uh, of freebooters, outlaws, and trouble out there. And so this was a very independently-minded society. Now, that frontier had closed, had been, uh, been stabilised, and law and order was spreading, it, it must be said, uh, by the eight, 1899. <clears throat> the mineral boom, gold and diamonds, had led to the creation of a fairly sizable Boer cities, notably Johannesburg and Pretoria, Bloemfontein rather smaller, which had a certain amount of industry, mining industry, and of course refining there. But a large portion, perhaps indeed the, the vast majority, I should say, of Boers still lived in relatively rural environments. These were farming communities, they were outdoor communities, small villages in some cases, and individual farmsteads. And actually by 1899, Boer society was recognising differentiation between uh, Boers. So there were urban Boers who grew up in cities, worked in the cities. There was the um, those who lived in villages, which may have mining connections or may have um, you know, base industrial connections, but were generally agrarian. And then there was the homesteaders who lived quite a distance away from, from others and were uh, living out, out in the wilderness effectively. And finally, there was even a fourth category of boars that we might say were hillbillies or hicks. And these were boars who lived right out on the frontier, uh, often eking out a fairly meagre existence through subsistence or something. And so the boars had a, a, a very much an outdoor society and a, a rugged society. And the nature of Boer society, where law law and order was pretty difficult to enforce, you know, you're a long way away. If you, unless you're in a city, you're a long way away from legal recourse, did create a strong independence of mind. And also, of course, it led to the creation of gun culture, where possessing a gun uh, and being skilled with it was both a means and a metaphor for independence. It was a means because you could use it to defend yourself, defend your family, and you could hunt with it. Uh, you could also defend your livestock or your farm. 
from a wild game that might wander into it. So it's very important in that sense. And it was also a metaphor for independence. A coming-of-age ceremony for many Boers was actually to be presented with their first rifle, which would usually sometime around the 14 males. And this was a sort of rite of passage. Gun culture, were, therefore, was a very real phenomenon to the Boers, and was it was a crucial and quite distinct feature of their outlook. So you have these very independently-minded individuals who grow up in a pretty tough environment, it must be said. The majority of them are eking out a fairly moderate existence in what is, at times, quite an inhospitable climate. They're used to handling guns, they're used to being outdoors, they're used to a pretty tough life. And so they are, in many ways, the epitome of a society. Of course, contrast that with the British. And, of course, Britain is an industrialised society. Uh, in contrast to South Africa, the majority of the population live around cities and have done since the uh, since the, the really the, the dawning of the major industrial revolution in the early part of the physical fitness and physical health in Britain is questionable. Um, as is found actually after the Boer War, perhaps 25% of the British working class comprise the majority of the British population. Uh, so one in four families is living on subsistence level um, uh, calorie intake. They're just not getting enough food. They're living a hand-to-mouth existence. What this translates into is a range of health problems, um, you know, sh- relatively small physiques, short stature, uh, teeth problems, problems associated with malnutrition, things like rickets and so on, uh, are quite common in urban areas. But the I think something that we can be a little bit, have to be a little bit careful with when talking about this is not to assume that the Boers are healthy and robust and wonderful outdoorsmen and the British are all sickly and pale. Of course, there's wide varieties between the, the actual physical condition. What is different, though, is that Britain is not a militarised society, but it does have a strong militarist element. The British public is fascinated by all things military. It's fascinated by the wars of empire, and it follows them avidly in the newspapers and magazines of the day. What the British Empire is not so keen on is actually serving in the army, and recruitment for the army is consistently poor. People like to admire it from afar rather than be involved in it. And so this leads to Britain having a remarkably small professional army. And I say remarkably small because, of course, the scale of territory which it may be called upon to operate in, the British Empire, and defend. And so Britain trusts to this army and has a, an affection for it, but doesn't the population doesn't necessarily want to be uh, terribly involved in it. Now, the British army is a class apart. Of course, it's a, a professional army, a standing army. It's not a conscript force. And so uh, the backbone of it are relatively long-serving soldiers who are pretty experienced in, in a range of operations. Um, you may have served in various corners of the empire, and, of course, approach war in a rather different way. And so to summarise and, and bring this back together, I think what you see is that the Boer military is drawn up of men who aren't trained, they're, um, they're, vol- they're, they're citizens who are called to a militia at time of war, but do come with that independent outlook that goes with being on the frontier, a gun culture that's taught them to be natural or, or individual marksmen, and um, an understanding of the terrain against the professional British army, which is is trained in or tactically adept in some ways, in some way. It's certainly more disciplined, it's more organised, but at the same time, it's not very flexible, it's not very mobile. And although it's an army that can theoretically go anywhere and do anything, it's not specialised to do any particularly one thing. And so it has to, every campaign it fights, there's an element of learning in the field, as we'll see that the problem British. So what underpins Boer morale and what what's their what's their motivation to fight? So this is a, a fantastic question because it's something that baffles the British. And to explain that a little bit further, to, to go back right to the start of the war, intelligence reports are produced on the Boers for consumption within the British Army. 
And these intelligence reports are, there's some accuracy to them. They, they do understand, they get the numbers of balls about right. They get certain things about how the balls are going to approach the war correctly. But they underestimate how resilient the balls will be. And, and memorably, one comment is that after one serious defeat in battle, the boards won't be in a position, of course, the false ambition. Ball morale is anchored on a variety of facts. I'd like to, to pick out three. The first is a strong sense of community. They're all citizens, of course, all together. And in the first instance, you will be paired in your commando unit, is of course the name for this. It doesn't have any connotation in the Afrikaans language. The unit is similar to saying you're a company or a battalion. You have a strong sense of, of shared community because your initial commando unit will be based on people from your area, your district. And so it's in that sense, it's, it's rather similar to a PALS battalion. You're fighting alongside men who presumably you, you have some connection by virtue you live. And because Moving around the vastness of South Africa is actually quite difficult. Senses of community are, are strong in the frontier. Your frontier villages and frontier districts are, are strongly welded together by the shared idea. And so this immediately gives a, an immediate sense of comradeship, identity, shared purpose, shared outlook, as well as uh, regional pride. You know, individual commander units can be very proud of their background. Um, some of them trace some lineage back to earlier wars. And can cite that. And so even though they don't have standing military units, there is almost a, um, I hesitate to say regimental tradition, but there is a tradition there that they can plug into combined with those strong regions. So I think that's one of the, that's one of the first factors. I think the second factor is a general, and these, these, this is two factors combined, it's religion and a sense of righteousness. Religion is very important in Afrikaans society. And, and as I mentioned earlier, their, their religion it draws upon uh, a very old form of Protestantism. It's the Protestantism of the 17th century, uh, a real fire and brimstone Old Testament approach to religion. And this, this has been built into Afrikaans society, that, that the, the Afrikaans are simultaneously God's chosen people, but also that they can expect punishment and, uh, and hard times and that endurance of hard times is part of their makeup and that this is part of african history too they look back to the perils of the great trek they look back to early wars against the zulus and the Khursa. they look back to the the first boer war and that there seems to be a culture of constant struggle and the need to renew boer independence through struggle and so when combined with this strong old testament underpinning of judgment and enduring hardship this makes the boers as a military force, quite resilient to setbacks, psychologically resilient to them, seeing them as part of this long tradition, which is, of course, tied into their religious background, that they must endure trials to eventually reach their promised land. So I think that's a, uh, an important factor. And the final factor is the sense of defending one's homeland. And this, again, ties in with the fact this is a frontier society where quite often your homeland has been carved out by your ancestors' efforts and you know, you have to work hard to try and hold on to what you have. It's been taken by force, but quite often is another matter entirely. But in 1899, uh, you feel that this is your home and you're, you're willing to defend it. And so this combined, these three factors combine quite strongly. Regional ties for your unit, a sense of righteousness uh, that ties into deep cultural understanding of, of African history and the recognition that the, the war is defensive in nature. The Boers have invaded British territory initially, but that's only to secure a defensive victory and that you're fighting to defend 
your homeland and, of course, your women, your children, your land and the Afrikaner nation as a whole. And these three factors, I think, create a really potent backbone for Boer morale. It's not an unshakable backbone, and Boer morale does get shaken badly at times, but it provides the underpinnings which, from which everything else flows. So what underpinned the morale of their British adversaries? This is an interesting question because, of course, the, the British army, as it evolves through the war, changes quite dramatically. It goes from the all-professional regular army, which starts the war, and fights in phase one. By phase two, there's a very strong volunteer component. Britain's auxiliary forces, the yeomanry, the militia, and the volunteers are um, called upon to go to South Africa. There's also just widespread volunteering in Britain, particularly for the yeomanry. And there are imperial contingents which volunteer too. And so all this means, of course, that actually the British Army changes quite a lot. The regulars, um, in terms of underpinning their morale, we see features that we would expect to find in a professional army. A training, regimental pride, discipline, uh, a confidence in victory that underpins uh, many uh, professional forces. One thing that actually shocks the British is the willingness of their forces, or seeming willingness of their forces, particularly their regular forces, to surrender in the Boer War. That's an interesting comment, and I'll address it now, in that something that's not really recognised, perhaps at the higher levels and in the British press, is that the Boer War for the British Army is the first war it's fought in a long time where it is possible to surrender. Fighting earlier colonial conflicts against the Zulus, the Afghans, um, the Burmese, the Sudanese, a variety of opponents, surrender is impossible. Um, the British Army's opponents doesn't, do not take prisoners, and so... It's necessary to fight to the death because, of course, there's no other option. The Boers, though, do take prisoners and do, by and large, treat them uh, reasonably well. And so it's one of the reasons that surrenders take place at what seems like a shocking level to the British, to British eyes is the fact it's possible to surrender. <clears throat> and so whereas before, uh, units would, ha would fight to the death because that was their only option, um, this isn't the case in the Boer War. And that's a point worth making because sometimes I think even now some authors... Uh, rather miss that point, so it's it's worth mentioning. Wider morale, though, and particularly when we look at the volunteer contingents, is very interesting because some of the volunteer contingents have serious problems with morale later on. The volunteers who go out seem to volunteer for a variety of reasons. There are some men who are escaping difficult circumstances, economic circumstances, or per personal problems, or anything else. People who are trying to get away from Britain for some reason. There are those who see it as an adventure, who are caught up in a sense of excitement generated by the press coverage of the war, um, interested in participating. Uh, and there are those, who are, of course, who are genuinely patriotic and feel that it's their duty involved. And these volunteer forces have a rather different experience of, to perhaps the regulars who, who approach it with a, a stoic, if not terribly excitable, uh, excitable way of doing it. The volunteers go out, again, many of the volunteer units are based on regional identities, a yeomanry. They're enjoy lavish press coverage uh, helps to boost their morale and they are um, have the advantage of all being enlisted roughly at the same time so there's a, a great shared identity they also have the, the one advantage that many of these units are only short service so they know they will get to go home um, in a relative but they're anchored to a much greater extent on a sense that they're they're the the, the war is worth fighting so they see the boss as the aggressor an interesting contrast with how the boss see themselves as defensively they caught are plugged into the british discipline system um which is of course anchored on officers and ncos as well as the discipline that comes with the army uh and uh, the extent to which there is a sense of doing patriotic duty amongst the volunteers is an interesting one because it varies enormously from 
unit to unit and individual to individual. But I think it's a genuine factor. And I think comparisons can be made with the Boer War volunteers to that early wave of volunteers in the First World War, a sense of volunteerism, a sense that the Empire's in danger and Britain's in danger from this, and that this is a cause that is worth fighting. But I do think that the morale does get a bit eroded as the war goes on and the insurgency campaign ever more vicious. And so I think the British Army, perhaps even more so than the Boers, goes through a variety of different moods as the war. And what's the final outcome, the defeat of the Boers? Was that due to the failure of Boer morale or the triumph of British morale? It's a little bit of both. I think the great advantage, of course, the British have is numerical preponderance and the ability to rotate units. That's a, a huge advantage. Um, whereas in comparison, the Boers are, are a declining fall, are slowly but surely losing the war of attrition against. Ultimately, it's Boer morale that is is brought low. The Boers, even in 1901, so it is a year of guerrilla war, appear to be in a comparatively strong position in, in terms of guerrilla operations. The British having a great deal of difficulty of bringing them to heel, uh, stopping roaming around at will but a renewed and, and refocused british coin campaign in 19 in late 1901 into 1902 starts to turn the tide against them and there's a number of things working against boer morale one is uh, the declining physical state of the boer forces they're being subjected to attrition that isn't just due to british military operations it's also due to uh, climatic conditions just the the grueling nature of being on uh, in constant guerrilla war that's a problem that's exacerbated of course by the ferocious british scorched earth campaign which destroys towns and villages uh, and denies the boars food um, or easy access to food and this forces the boars to take greater and greater risks to try and secure it particularly raiding zulu villages which draws reprisal attacks so that all this contributes to the boar fighters getting weaker um, you're suffering just natural wastage as, as, as men fall ill or simply cannot take the pressure anymore and depart. So they're being eroded in that sense. So, so Bormara is being worn down physically. But it's also being worn down mentally. And this is, I would say, there's two really key factors that combine to wear down Bormara uh, mentally. The first is a recognition that for all their efforts and all their sacrifices, they're not winning the war. And there's a hope, there's a strong hope, in fact, amongst the Boers early on, that if they can just hold on, then there's a possibility that there'll be a European intervention, European powers will ride to the rescue, if you will, and um, uh, ride in and intervene in the war, perhaps even send troops to South Africa, and that will save the day and the, the Boers will be um, you know, their independence be recognised and the British be forced to acknowledge this. That, of course, by 1902, that's not the case. It's, it's clear that the Europeans aren't going to get involved. The second factor is related to this, and this is the increasing numbers, excuse me, the increasing numbers of Boers who are now fighting for the British. And Boer commandos are dismissive and uh, indeed extraordinarily violent towards Boers in British uniform or working for the British. These uh, Boers fighting alongside the British and as joiners, uh, that's um, a, a very, uh, it, doesn't, it sounds a moderate comment, that's a strong insult to uh, to these men. If they're captured by Boer commandos, at best they'll be beaten and whipped um, and you know, tortured effectively. At worst, they'll be executed. So um, it gives you some idea about how, how much the Boer commandos hate them. But there's more and more of these joiners appearing. In fact, by the end of the war, there's more Boers working for the British as guides and so forth than there are actually Boers fighting against the British. And this recognition starts to, I think, erode the Boer belief in victory. The final factor is um, one that 
I think is a little controversial, but it's worth mentioning. And this is um, the the feeling or, or the fear amongst the Boers that if they carry on like this, they're going to be wiped out and they won't be in a position to then secure Afrikaan independence, not against the British. That war seems to be lost, but um, secure, or perhaps I should say maintain Afrikaner dominance over the black African population. And growing tensions between the Boers and the Zulus in late 1901 and into early 1902, caused by the fact that Boer commandos deprived of food, remember, are raiding Zulu villages and are taking food and are drawing reprisal attacks, raises this terrifying spectre. And this is, again, a cultural fear, a deep cultural fear of the Afrikaans, that this may provoke a war against the Zulus, which they will then be in a position which they're not, to, they're not they won't be in a position to win. They'll be so eroded by the war with the British that they won't be in a position to continue this conflict and so it's better to make a deal now and preserve uh, what they have preserve something than risk everything in a war that they're clearly losing uh, and then possibly in a, be in a position afterwards where they might be overwhelmed by in some ways the boar's oldest enemy the zulu they've clashed with from the earliest days the great trek onwards and african independence in some ways is built on um their opposition to the zulu so these factors are all weighing on the remaining Boer commandos' minds. They're, they're being worn down. They're clearly not going to win the war. Uh, there's more and more of their own countrymen are fighting against them, and they're worried about the post-war world. The British advantage in morale is a sense of um, constant control of the war, despite the raids that go on in the background. The urban centres always remain under British control. The ability, of course, to rotate units and, and um, maintain units there. And although individual units can have poor morale, and sometimes this can lead to them getting routed or getting knocked over by Boer commandos, the army as a whole never loses its confidence in victory. It may take a while, and indeed it does, but the that weight of British numbers and that a certainty of victory ultimately steers them through. And, and for, unfortunately for the Boers, their morale cannot sustain this, and they're, they're simply ground down by the weight of the British Empire's armed forces. What lessons do both sets of combatants take about morale and motivation after 1902? That is a very interesting question. I, I think the Boers themselves um, go away, and the, the historiography of Boer commandos is very, very narrow until relatively recently. It's not until the 1990s, really, that the Boer commando morale is seriously assessed. And for anybody who's listening who's interested, the definitive book on the subject is by Franz Johann Pretorius, and it's simply called Life on Commando. And it's a, a study of how do the commandos function, how do they work. It's a little bit difficult to get hold of, but if you're interested, this is Peter Hyler. What happens after the war for Boer commandos is a great deal of myth-making and, and the idea that Boer commandos were extraordinarily efficient and were had much higher morale, much higher fighting quality than the, their British opponents. There's some truth in this. Undoubtedly, Boer commandos... Uh, particularly the group known as the Bitter Enders, the, the last holdouts really, were tough, they had high morale, and they were militarily efficient in their own way. But it ignores a multitude of problems that the Boers actually had. A desertion was pretty severe for the Boer army early in the war. Discipline was often poor. And then um, as a way to restore discipline, quite ferocious physical discipline was often substituted. A beating with uh, shamboks, uh, South African whips, very common in some Boer years. It also ignores the, the violence of Boer commandos, both internally, sometimes they could, they, they could be pretty brutal to their own members, 
and also, of course, the violence that they could inflict on others. And in the the aftermath, and this would endure for a long time, it must be said, that it said a great deal of myth-making was created of the, of the Boers, almost as super soldiers. Uh, effective they were, high morale, some of them had, but I think that ignores a lot of complexity. And so lessons that were drawn from this, I think, were, were largely misleading. The actual picture that emerges is much more subtle and has lots of, of small variations based on unit to unit and um, group to group. For the British, the, the lessons were, were a little bit clearer. The, the British came out of the Boer War very disappointed with their performance. The army much criticised. Um, I dare say there was embarrassment, you know, perhaps best captured by Rudyard Kipling's poem, The Lesson, reflected on the fact that the Boers had taught the British a, a lesson in military operations. In terms of morale, there were two real interpretations that came out of this, and they had a no, it was they were both broad churches, so they had a number of adherents, uh, and they, the, the the battle lines were not completely fixed. But the two schools of thought that came out of this, I, I would I would say one was the positive school of thought, and the other was very much the negative thought. The positive school of thought was was smaller, although it had some important figures in it, notably Ian Hamilton. Um, and GFR Henderson, the theorists create combined two. Henderson, Hamilton, and, and one or two other observers took a positive view of British morale, noting that it had actually held up quite well, even in, in difficult position, noting the willingness of relatively junior officers or even NCOs to take charge of attacks and start to move them forward. And recognising what we'd probably now call platoon tactics, that small, relatively small groups, perhaps 50 to 30, 30 to 50 men, led by a handful of determined individuals, private soldiers, NCOs, perhaps junior officers, were often the key to successful action. These men would drive themselves and would bomb well. And Hamilton and indeed others thought that the key to a future British army was creating more of these type of highly motivated men who could be relied upon to use their weapons with skill and then advance undercover, making use of their field craft. And the positive response to the Boer War sought the solution to the various problems of morale that have been exposed in the conflict as making soldiers better, giving them more confidence in their weapons, in their training and in their comrades and empowering particularly NCOs to lead attacks rather than simply interpret orders from officers. And so there was this positive school that saw the lessons to be learned as actually quite positive that it was about reforming training to make men more confident in their abilities and give them Crucially, the ability to make their own decisions to improve the initiative of your soldiers, NCOs. On the other hand, there was what we might term the negative school, which actually drew rather different conclusions from the war. And they looked at what had happened in the war and they were horrified by two particular things. The first was the, the level of surrenders. Now, I've already mentioned that previously in this podcast. Many of the observers failed to recognize that the fact that it was possible to surrender to Boers made it more likely that soldiers would surrender. But some of these observers felt that soldiers had surrendered rather too quickly, and there certainly are examples of that. Um, and they, further from this, they also came to a conclusion that British soldiers were not quite as courageous as they had once been, uh, calling them on perhaps a mythical idea of, uh, of heroic, forlorn hopes, if you will, from the Napoleonic onwards. There was a fear of um, racial degeneration in Britain that drew some inspiration from the poor physical state of British soldiers, their poor educational state in some senses, and this tied into the wider national efficiency movement, sort of bipartisan political movement, which thought that Britain was in physical and, and racial decline and that needed to be corrected. And some of the negative um, opinions that came from the army saw this being reflected in the soldiers themselves who were physically frail and were mentally subnormal, at least or so they felt they were. 
There was also a fear, and this seems quite bizarre, of course, looking back a century on, that modern life had made men soft. And this, again, harkened back to a, a sort of mythical view of the army of the Napoleonic Wars as exceptionally tough and unusually tough, and then looked forward a century to the early 1900s and said, well, modern life is so much easier than it was then, and it's made men soft. From that, there was also a sub-idea, sub and this was that city living was not conducive to, to high morale, that it, it degenerated you because of the proximity of entertainment, the music hall, the gambling den, the uh, public houses. And also it took you away from the, the, um, the joys of outdoor life and everything with it. And all of these negative views were bound up strongly in this idea of racial decline. The solution to them uh, was largely, uh, I should add, similar to that of the positive view, that training had to be improved to um, overcome men's fear of, uh, fear of fire and, and reduce the chance of surrender. But the, the, the approach they took was subtly different to the positive view, whereas the positive view saw training being about improving skill at arms and skill as a soldier, which would give you confidence in yourself and allow you to do things. The negative view took a slightly different angle and instead believed a great deal in patriotic instruction, in encouraging men to take risks, to attack, to um, overcome the fear of death and so on, and, and be willing to take risks. And it perhaps took more of a moral view of the problem of morale. So it was about moral forces, about a determination to go forward and um, what was going to motivate you, more so than the, the perhaps the positive view, which saw skill at arms as the key to improving morale. The two ultimately found more in common than they did um, it, it, it separately. They both believed in the, the importance of improving training. They both believed in the importance of um, training soldiers to, to show initiative. And in the end, the, the, the nature of British tactics and training after the Boer War swung the argument towards the positive side. And although there was still certainly adherence of those who said, no, there must be a lot more patriotic instruction, there must be a lot more um, overcoming the fear of death, those views never took off in the same way they did, for example, France. Now, this all said, it didn't stop in 1914, at least one British commander telling his division that there would be no surrenders and that all units are expected to fight to the death. And in this sense, it's, it does come across that perhaps not that much had been learned about the nature of why units surrendered in South Africa. Um, you know, if there is an opportunity to surrender, soldiers will invariably at times take it. Uh, and it's all very well to tell people to fight to the death. If you are fighting an enemy who doesn't take prisoners, for example, the Zulu, well, the, the question's rather moot, but if you're fighting who does, uh, who's willing to take your prisoner, there's always going to be that temptation. So the extent to which the lessons were learned, perhaps, um, is debatable. But interesting different interpretations on why and how soldiers stayed. Do you think there are any lessons that policymakers and military people can learn from the conflict in terms of morale and motivation for today's uh, world? I do. I think one of the things that comes out of this, and I hearken back to the British Army's advertising campaign recently in which it was calling upon uh, the, the advert was for soldiers. Uh, we're looking for binge gamers and social media addicts and mobile phone zombies. And it would it would tie in uh, various comments about we're looking for gaming addicts in your determination and so on and so forth. A campaign that, of course, caused inordinate outrage in certain parts of social media and certain parts of the British media uh, and indeed wider beyond. And one of the arguments that I saw put forward against this was the idea that modern society is soft and that these people aren't going to you know join the army and be a real man or a real woman and, and all this sort of thing 
as it was in some sort of mythical, half-remembered past. And the comparison to how the British Army reacts uh, in the Boer War and just after to morale and, and its uh, the approach of morale for its soldiers is really striking. The, the idea that yeah, there were plenty of commentators in the press in the early 1900s saying life's soft now, soldiers aren't what they were, men aren't what they were, they're weak, and so on. And yet, and yet at the same time as those old argument forward, there were also those who were saying, well, hold on, wars change. It's more technical now. Uh, we're going to need more machines. We're going to need people who know how to, to be mechanics and so on, which was not a job that necessarily Wellington's army would have needed in the same way. We're going to need people who use telephones, work telegraph systems, and, and a lot more. We're going to need educated soldiers who can do things. And if they're not quite so um, unthinking and unfeeling as perhaps soldiers of 100 years earlier, well, that's just the way it is. And I see comparisons with the um, vitriolic reaction to the British Army's own attempts to recruit perhaps a different type of soldier. And it Again, I think there's a hearkening back to a sort of mythical age uh, of um, soldiers where they were stoic, heroic, and completely unflappable. And, of course, even the, the most casual study of why units surrender in the First and Second World Wars will tell you that actually morale is much more complicated than that. And so I saw really strong comparisons. I also think there's something to be said about the comparisons between uh, the fact that the British Army to this day in, in, in the UK is popular, it, it has high public opinion. Uh, poll after poll shows that the British public has faith in its army, and yet it always struggles to recruit. Um, and this is exactly the same problem the army had in the early 90s. It simply does not, It's for, for reasons that are long and complex, it's not seen as a career path, uh, a very large. And this is not be necessarily because they are not soldierly or they're not um, you know, interested in military affairs, but there are complex reasons why um, people don't enter the military. And I think that is something that the modern military in Britain still hasn't quite grasped and still hasn't grappled with. And if we can take this a step further, um, Simon Ackham's book, or Acom, I believe, it's Changing of the Guard, which is a book about the British Army from 2001 to the present day. I, I read that book recently, and I was absolutely struck by how much of the criticism of the army in the early 21st century was being applied to the army in the early 20th century. Uh, the idea that the officer corps is drawn from a very narrow strata, that the army doesn't really talk to each other, that units don't really share ideas, um, that there's various cultural problems in the army, particularly drinking culture and so on. And it struck me that the, even a century on, so many of the problems um, that we that were clear in early 90s were had then and what but what i think perhaps is most interesting is the pessimists the negative school in the early 1900s feared that in the event of a war um british soldiers the british nation would not rise to the challenge and their morale would collapse of the performance of british soldiers the first and second war, although of course not universally perfect i think proved those doubts as wrong and um you know, some of the doomsayers the naysayers in the 21st century talk of total decline of the army and uh your decline of British man and womanhood, I think perhaps they would do well to look back and, and see that their forebear, their very own forebears a century earlier, were saying much the same thing and they were wrong then. And I do think that there's um, there's lessons to be learned from that experience and lessons that I think will ultimately will continue to be to have. I suspect in 100 years' time, we may still be having these on. And finally, where can people learn more about your work? So the uh, where can you learn more? The first of all, you can follow me on Twitter. 
Um, my handle is historian1940, or one word, so you can keep up to date with me there. Otherwise, um, I recommend, and that's also got a link on my Twitter to all my uh, available YouTube lectures. So if you want to see me talk about the Boer War in more depth in there. Um, otherwise, if you search simply for Spencer Jones Historian on Google, uh, that will bring up my university bio where you can contact me directly. And similarly, if you search for Spencer Jones Historian on your favorite booksellers page, you'll find my books and my work in this regard. So hopefully I've inspired you to look me up and there's plenty more information out there um, and plenty more work I've done on Aspen. Spencer, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom.